Thank you, uh, Ryan and worship band, for leading us in worship. Um, and thank you, Pastor Lewis, for allowing me the opportunity to preach again. Um, it is a joy, it's a privilege, and I'm, I'm grateful to get to do this uh, each opportunity that you give me. Uh, we'll be this, uh, in Matthew chapter 5, verses 13 through 16 this morning, continuing our study through the Sermon on the Mount. So if you have your Bible, you can go ahead and turn there. Now, whether you are a Christian or a non-Christian, it is a statement of fact that Jesus of Nazareth is the most influential person in the entire narrative of human history. I do not believe that that is an exaggeration. Our systems of social organization, literature, the arts and music, architecture and education, as well as the ceremonies of marriage and death, all have been shaped by Jesus. No person before him or after him since has ever caused such an extraordinary surge of influence, supremacy, or mastery over his initiatives. One-third of the world's population identify themselves to him, rendering him the most significant influencer and leader to ever live. Someone once said, imagine a world without Disney. Although that's a great proposition, I would argue that the world as we know it would be exceedingly different without the imprint and influence of Jesus Christ. The way that he lived his life was a silent rebuke to those around him, and the things that he spoke and taught were the most life-giving and truth-filled words ever spoken. Jesus, in other words, was the purest salt and the brightest light that this dark and decaying world had ever seen, and look at the impact that he had. Now, I say that because as we continue through the Sermon on the Mount, our Lord here shifts to a new thought in verse 13 and through 16. And, and having shown us the character of the Christian, in the Beatitudes, in verses 3 through 12, he now transitions to show the function and purpose of the Christian in this world in verses 13 through 16. So in these verses, we are told very clearly the relationship of the Christian in the world in general and the influence that the Christian is to have upon it. And therefore, the title of this message this morning is A Christian's, a Christian's Influence, Salt and Light. A Christian's influence, salt and light. So let's begin by just reading the verses. Matthew chapter 5, 13 through 16. Jesus says, you are the salt of the earth. But if the salt has become tasteless, how will it be made salty again? It is no longer good for anything except to be thrown out and trampled underfoot by men. You are the light of the world. A city set on a hill cannot be hidden, nor does anyone light a lamp and put it under a basket, but on a lampstand, and it gives light to all who are in the house. Let your light shine before men in such a way that they may see your good works and glorify your Father who is in heaven. Now in these verses, our Lord Jesus Christ announces to his disciples that we are to be the salt and light of the world. We who have entered his kingdom are to exert a tremendous influence upon the world. So we are not to blend in. We are to stand out. We are to be distinct. We are told in the scriptures to be otherworldly in our minds and outlook, but that never means that we are to retire out of the world. We are never told in the scriptures to live a life of monasticism, that is to live a life of isolation, to kind of go out into a cave and live in this secret society in our holy huddles. Rather, he is calling us in this passage to penetrate the world, not to play defense but to play offense, and to go into the world with the only message of hope that there is. And he begins in verse 13 with his first affirmation. Look at it. He says, you are the salt of the earth. This affirmation, by the way, parallels verse 14, you are the light of the world. Now, the you are in both of those statements is emphatic. He says, you and you only are the salt of the earth. And who does he refer to when he says you? 
Well, clearly, it's the people that identify with the Beatitudes in verses 3 through 12. It's the people with the attitudes and the character of the kingdom. The salt of the earth are people who are poor in spirit. That is, they are bankrupt of all spiritual resources, and they know that they bring nothing to the spiritual table. They are mournful. They are mournful over their sin. They are meek. They are hungering and thirsting for a righteousness that they know they need, but they cannot get on their own. They're merciful to people because they've experienced the tender mercy of God in Christ. And they're pure in heart. They're peacemakers. They're at peace with God and man. And because of all this, they're persecuted, verse 10, for righteousness' sake, due to living a life like their Lord Jesus Christ. And we said in those last messages that verses 3 through 12 are a type of profile of anyone who would call themselves a disciple of Jesus Christ. It's the person who, by the grace of God, manifests the beatitude kind of life. They they manifest, by the grace of God, kingdom character. And Jesus says, these people, and these people only, are the salt and light of the earth. So it's not the Pharisees. It's not the religious leaders. It's not the Sadducees. It's not the elite. It's not the leaders in academics. It's the poor in spirit. It's the meek. And it's the Christ-like. Which is an amazing thought. Because what possible influence could those people exert in this hard, tough world that we live in? What lasting good can they accomplish whose only passion is an appetite for righteousness and whose only weapon is purity of heart? Surely these types of people are feeble and weak. And most certainly they're a small minority in the world, for sure. I mean, what kind of influence can they have? And when you consider who he's talking to at the time that he is speaking this, it's even more remarkable because most of them were a bunch of Palestinian peasants or common fishermen. Not very influential in society, not very important by the world's standards. But Jesus did not share in that type of skepticism. Rather, it was the opposite. Now, in order to define the nature of their influence, Jesus used two domestic metaphors. Every home, however poor it was, used and still uses salt and light. So salt and light are both indispensable household commodities that everyone in that day would would understand. And I think the use of light is obvious, um, but salt maybe not so much. Salt had a variety of uses in that day. Just to name a few, uh, salt enhances flavor. Salt creates thirst. But more than anything else, salt was used as a preservative in that day. It was used to prevent putrefaction. That, I believe, is the principal use of the word salt that Jesus had in mind as he was teaching. The principal function of salt in that day was to preserve and to act as an antiseptic. Take, for instance, a piece of meat. Okay, so there were, there, there were not refrigerators in that day. So you have a piece of meat. You want to prevent it from spoiling. You want to prevent it from going bad, from going and experiencing the rot and the germs and the diseases that will eventually come off. So you take that piece of meat and you would rub salt all over and into the meat. And that salt would actually preserve it from the pollution, preserve it from the decay, preserve it from spoiling. And so salt's main function then, note this, is negative rather than positive. It is to hinder. It is to slow down. It is to prevent entirely corruption and infection. So that is primarily the principal use of salt that I believe Jesus uses. And I wonder how often we as Christians think of ourselves in that way. Our role as disciples of Jesus Christ is to be a preservative in this world. In fact, you would not even want to live in this world if it were not for the saltiness of the saints. The planet would be overrun with iniquity and lawlessness were it not for the presence of believers who were the salt of the earth. 
And by the way, the use of the salt metaphor about the Christian is not only a description of, of who he is and his function, but I think it is, it is a description by implication of the world that he finds himself in. If the salty Christians are to prevent decay, then this clearly implies that there is a rottenness into the earth. There is a tendency to moral pollution, to becoming corrupted. Is this not the biblical teaching from the very beginning? For example, take, um, the, take, the, take Genesis chapter 6, right? Soon after man and woman fell into sin, God looks upon his creation, and it says in Genesis 6.12, God saw the earth, and behold, it was corrupt, for all flesh had corrupted their way upon the earth. And so what does God do? Well, he sends a flood of judgment and he starts humanity all over again with eight people. But we, very, we, we see very quickly that this principle of pollution and decay and moral putrefaction, we could say, um, comes again in Genesis 19 with Sodom and Gomorrah, with that city's unthinkable corruption and moral decay. But you see, this is the biblical teaching which is constantly before us. The earth and the world has a persistent tendency to moral putrefaction and corruption. And listen, what Jesus is saying in this verse is that the function of the Christian in this world, in the mind and purpose of God, is that we might be a preservative in this world. That's why we're still here. You know, worship is a lot better in heaven. Fellowship is a lot better in heaven. There is a reason why we're left here after we're converted. We must be salt, out of the salt shaker, and into the corrupt world. And we must be light that penetrates the thick cloud of darkness of this world. So how are we to do this? How are we to do this? Well, I suggest to you that as the individual Christian is being the man or woman that they are in every sphere in which he finds himself in, he will inevitably be acting as salt. Take, for example, a number of people who are talking amongst themselves at work. Okay? They're talking about what they did over the weekend. They're using foul language. They're talking crudely. They're, 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 they're talking about some of the evil things that they did. Now, suddenly a Christian enters into their company. And immediately his presence has an effect. He didn't even have to say anything. They just knew. They felt his presence among them. They knew the character of that person. They had seen how he lives his life by a different standard of living. And by his very presence being among them, they actually cleaned up their talking. He is, he is, he is controlling the, the tendency to corruption and pollution. His very presence had a purifying effect on the situation. And he does this, the Christian will do this in every sphere and in every situation in which he finds himself. He does this in the privacy of his own home with his wife and with his children. He does this at work and at his office. He does this at the grocery store and in public. Christians, by living out what they are, influence society and those around them automatically. It has been that way from the very beginning. And Jesus teaches us in these verses one of the most basic and fundamental truths about the Christian man or woman. And that is that the Christian in this world in which he finds himself in are completely and utterly different. Salt is essentially different from the thing that it is placed in. And in a sense, it exercises all of its qualities by being different. The same is true with light. It is completely different in nature than the darkness that it illuminates. One man put it this way, the Christian is to be as different from other people as the Lord Jesus Christ was different from the world in which he lived, end quote. In other words, words it is our distinctiveness which is what gives us our influence. At least that's the way that it's supposed to be. That's the way that God designed it. But there's a problem. Okay, look at verse 13 again. You are the salt of the earth, but 
If the salt has become tasteless, how will it be made salty again? What's he saying there? Well, salt will still remain salt, but he says sometimes the salt loses its saltiness. It loses its sting. It loses its, its pungency. It loses its distinctiveness, really. It, it becomes flat and it becomes insipid. And therefore, it loses the preserving influence, which was the whole purpose for it being left there in the first place. So what Jesus is saying here, if the salt becomes, the salt becomes worldly, if the salt tones it down, if the salt compromises, if it loses its edge, there will be some repercussions in the world. The salt becomes tasteless when it loses the offense of the cross. The salt becomes tasteless when, it's, when it loses its message of the exclusivity of salvation in Jesus Christ alone. It loses its saltiness when it no longer practices church discipline. When it remains silent about abortion. When it ordains homosexuals into the church and into the ministry. When it endorses women preachers. When it no longer calls sin, sin. When it denies the eternality of a real place called hell. When that takes place, the church has lost its savor. It's lost its way. It's lost its edge and its pungency and its sting. When it, cannot, no, when it can no longer call out sin for what it really is, when it loses its purity and its moral courage and its convictions, because it's caved in to the very agenda of the world that we are to be impacting and influencing. We have become their mission field. And instead of the salt influencing the world, it's the world influencing the salt. So what is the result of this? He says, how will it be made salty again? It is no longer good for anything except to be thrown out to be trampled underfoot by men. Now, some people take this to mean that you lose your salvation. Um, and then others that I respect take this to mean that you apostatize, which basically means that you uh, walk away from the faith because you were never really saved in the first place. Well, I understand how they got there. I do not believe that this is talking about losing your salvation. I think it means that you lose your influence. You lose your witness. You lose, we, we lose the function of the world, in, in the world as a believer, as salt. We, this is a warning, I believe, to believers. It says, if the salt, you are, but if the salt loses its taste, then we lose the whole reason why we were left here in the first place. And Jesus says, in effect, while you may still be salt, you are no longer good for anything in the kingdom of God. No longer any good in evangelism. No longer any good in purifying your community. No longer any good in bringing glory to God. Unsalty salt contributes nothing to the kingdom of God. It fails to arrest corruption and becomes worthless in agents of change and redemption. It becomes impotent to fulfill its divinely ordained role. Herschel Hobbes says this, Here is the case of lost opportunity. Life simply passes them by, and they have no effect on the world. They receive only scorn as the world tramples them under its feet, and it rushes on to corruption, despair, and loss. End quote. The bottom line is this. If we become assimilated to non-Christians, or if we become contaminated by the impurities of the world, we will lose our influence. 
The power of Christian influence in this world depends on us being distinct, not identical. The power, let me say that again, the power of Christian influence in this world depends on us being distinct, not identical. Martin Lloyd-Jones put it this way, quote, the glory of the gospel is that when the church is absolutely different from the world, she invariably attracts it. It is then that the world is made to listen to her message, though it may hate it at first, end quote. Yet sadly, many evangelical churches today try to cater to the world, actually. And they, they, they try to cater to the world by looking like the world. Christian performers copy every worldly fad in music and entertainment. Preachers are terrified that the offense of the gospel might turn someone against them, so they deliberately omit the parts of the message that might offend someone. Nothing is spoken of purity of life. Nothing is spoken of renunciation of sin and worldly philosophy. This is the myth of influence. The myth of influence is, if they think Jesus is cool, they'll think we're cool too. So let's have a worldly veneer about us so that we can make people think how cool Jesus is. Listen carefully, people. There is and has always been a fundamental, irreconcilable incompatibility between the church and the world. Christian thought is out of harmony with all the world's philosophies. Genuine faith in Christ entails a denial of every worldly value. Biblical truth contradicts all the world's religions. Christianity itself is therefore antithetical to virtually everything that this world admires. There's a key passage in John 17 that I think is important. John 17, you might want to go ahead and, and turn there. John 17, 14 through 18. I think that this, we don't have time to dive into it, but I think that this passage will help us to understand what Jesus is saying here. John 17, 14 through 18. Jesus says to the Father in his high priestly prayer, he says this, I have given them your word. He's talking about the disciples. I have given them your word, and the world has hated them because they are not of the world, even as I am not of the world. And then this statement, verse 15, this is really key. I do not ask you to take them out of the world, but to what? Keep them from the evil one. Jesus says, they must remain in the world because they are to be a godly influence upon it, to preserve it and to purify it. But keep them from the evil one, he says. Keep them unstained from the world that we are to impact, he says. And in, and in our language of Matthew 5, he says, keep them salty. Keep them salty. You, may, you say, well, how is that going to happen? Well, verse 17 Sanctify them by the truth. Your word is truth. As you have sent me into the world, I also sent them into the world. Not away from it, but into it. Not out of it, but in it. And essentially what he says in John 17 is this. Sanctified saints who are saturated with God's word will remain salty. Sanctified saints who are saturated with God's word will remain salty. We must remain salty. We must keep the sting and the flavor and the, the, the penetrating effect upon a godless, decaying world. Or else we are useless. So, this leads me to this question. Why is evil so rampant in the United States? Why is evil so rampant in Baton Rouge? It's not because hearts have become more evil. They've always been evil. You saw that in Genesis 6. John Stott says it best. One can hardly blame unsalted meat for going bad. 
It cannot do anything else. The real question is, where is the salt? You see, we Christians, we spend a lot of time just throwing up our hands when we look at the world, when we turn on the news, right? We throw up our hands in pious horror and we say, we kind of, re- we kind of reproach the non-Christian world. Should we not rather reproach ourselves? Should we not ask the question to ourselves: how am I acting as salt and how am I acting as light? The main trouble is that there are far too Christian people and those of us who are Christian are not sufficiently salt. We are not manifesting the beatitude character as much as we should and we are not as different from the world as we ought to be. The truly saintly person radiates his influence. It will permeate any group in which he happens to be in. It doesn't matter if they are the president of the company or if they are the man sweeping the floors. If they are a Christian and if his life has been saved and transformed by the Holy Spirit and the power of the gospel, it affects all others around him. Now these are strong words from Jesus in verse 13. But he has more to say about the Christian's purpose and function in the world. And in verse 14, he makes a second pronouncement. And these salt and light pronouncements are kind of in tandem together. They're in tandem together. They have to be taken as a pair. Verse 14, you are the light of the world. And this again presupposes how dark the world is. That the God of this age, the prince of the power of the age, has has darkened this world, and that the world is suffocating under a thick cloud of spiritual darkness. That there is a spiritual blindness to the world. That that the world and, and humankind in general is sort of groping around in darkness because they do not see any light of spiritual truth. And so Jesus then looks upon those simple, common, entirely unimportant people by the world's standards, and he says, you and you only are the light of the world. Now immediately the question arises, how are we to be the light of the world? And I think first we must remember that Jesus said of himself in John 8 and John 9, I am the light of the world. Our Lord's claim was that he himself was the light of God. But now we see that also, he also said that his true disciples are the light of the world. And his promise is that, John 8, 12, he who follows me will never walk in the darkness, but will have the light of life. So it comes to this then, that he and he alone gives us this light. But he does not stop at that. He, he makes us light, we could say. You, you remember what Paul said in Ephesians 5.8. Let's turn there as well. Ephesians 5.8, because I think this is another key passage. Ephesians chapter 5, verse 8. Ephesians 5, verse 8. I think this text gets right at the heart of what Jesus is saying. It says this, Paul. For at one time... You were darkness, but now you are light in the world. We ourselves at one time were darkness. Notice that language. You were darkness itself. You were not simply in the dark, but you were darkness. And then these words, but now you are light in the Lord. The light of the gospel of Jesus Christ has entered this person. He has illuminated the whole of his being. He has controlled him. Our hearts have been made light. The light has been put into this person. The Christian, therefore, is not merely a man who has the eyes of his understanding enlightened. He has that, but he has more. His whole body and soul are now filled with light. This is an important distinction because it emphasizes again the essential difference between the Christian and the non-Christian. Light and darkness are eternal opposites, are they not? The light affects the vitals of his being. 
the seat of his personality, the center of his person and of his life. And this is why Paul said in Colossians 1 that we've been transferred out of the kingdom of darkness and into the light of God's dear son. And note that this pronouncement perfectly parallels the first one as well. There are some similarities in pronouncement one or two, but there are also some differences. I mentioned earlier that the salt metaphor is primarily a negative function, in that the salt prevents, it hinders, it sort of, it takes away, it controls, it removes. Um, Now the function of light is more positive. It illuminates the darkness. We could say it this way, we are God's salt to retard the corruption and we are God's light to reveal truth. The salt controls the error and the sin, the light adds the truth. One is silent, the other is verbal. Salt works primarily through our living, while light works primarily through what we teach and preach. Salt not only reveals what is wrong and false, but it helps to produce what is righteous and true. It's one thing to stop the spread of evil, but it is another to promote the spread of truth, beauty, and goodness. But God's plan for us is that we would be both. It comes as a set. It's sort of like the Beatitudes. You can't just pick and choose which ones, oh, I'll take, yep, I'll take that file, I'll take, no, it comes as a set. They are in parallel with each other so that we can be effective witnesses for Christ. And so as we live our lives as light of the world, his light is to shine out of us into the darkness of this world. That's why we're still here. God has left us here after we're converted in order to be salt in the light that we could not be in heaven. And so he gives two illustrations in reference to the Christian's light. The first one comes in verse 14. He says, a city that is set on a hill cannot be hidden. There's a beauty about a city that is set on a hill, especially when there's nothing else around for miles and miles. And this was a common thing apparently to do in ancient times because if you built your city on the top of a hill, it would give you sort of a more defensible position against invading armies. But at night, when that city is lit up with its activities and its businesses and its houses, it literally cannot be obscured. It is, it's, it's high up, it's, it's where everyone can see it from the dark, empty landscape that is below. And in the same way, people, we've gotta be visible. We can't be a secret, quiet influence. We've gotta be visible, and the light has to shine openly. We're not to be totally caught up in our holy huddles. We don't need to go live in a cave somewhere and isolate ourselves so that we don't get contaminated. The whole world ought to see us. Listen, I love the fellowship of Christians. And I love, Katie and I love gathering with you all every week. We love having other Christians into our home for meals. We love talking about the Bible with other Christians. We love discipling, we love all of that, all of that good stuff with other Christians, but God forbid if that is all that we do. We are to go out into the world, and we are to link arms with one another, and we are to shine our lights throughout the dark world so that they may know this God of light as well. And if you are a Christian here today, you may be the only light that your coworkers ever see. You ever think about that? And to further illustrate this, he gives a second illustration in verse 15. Look at it. Nor does anyone light a lamp and put it under a basket, but on the lampstand, so that it gives light to all who are in the house. Now this, this may seem obvious, but it needs to be said. The whole function of light is to give light. There is no other purpose but that. The whole purpose and function of light is to give light. The whole purpose of light is that it may be disseminated and diffused into a particular area. 
But see, this parallels his statement in verse 13 about salt not having the, having the potential to lose its saltiness and become useless. See, I suggest to you that a Christian who has lost his saltiness is also a Christian who is hiding his light. He's hidden. He's either ashamed of the name and he's scared of persecution, or he's allowed the world to influence him instead of him influencing the world. But either way, he's not functioning in the way that God designed, in the way that he purposed, and he has become utterly useless to the kingdom. And that, Jesus says, is about as stupid as lighting a lamp and then putting a basket over it. It's foolish, he says. That is utterly ridiculous, he says. It's like building a fire because you're cold, getting that successfully done, and then you want to build a fire in, a wall in front of the fire so that it blocks all of the heat. You say, what was the point of that? You should have never built the fire in the first place. That's exactly what Jesus is saying. According to our Lord's argument, that is sometimes the truth concerning the Christian. There are so many Christians who have the light of Christ within them, but they don't live in stark contrast to the world so that anyone ever knows about it, or so that anybody ever notices this different and higher life. And they, know, and they never open their mouth to share the gospel. They might be a little different, but in some ways they sort of hide, they sort of mask their Christianity, right? They're, they're, it's like they're wearing camo, somebody said. Their, their Christian life is concealed. It's hidden. The Apostle Paul describes this when he speaks of certain people holding to a form of godliness, but having denied its power. So they want to be Christian, but they are not functioning as a Christian should. They are salt without saltiness, and they are light without light, if you can imagine such a thing. No, Jesus says that we are to put our, put our lights on the lampstand, on the top, on the top and middle part of the room so that it might give light to all who are in the house. And then Jesus concludes in verse 16. He says this, let your light shine before men. Men here refer to unbelievers. They refer to those who live in darkness still those who are ignorant of God, those who have no saving knowledge of God and the gospel, those who live still in the kingdom of darkness, Colossians 1, and those who live godless lives, those who are living in defiance of the law of God that is written on their own conscience. And Jesus says, you need to let your light shine before these men in such a way that they may see your good works. And this word for see here really carries the idea that, it, that they may see with their mind's eye. That, yes, they see the, work, the, the good works physically, they see that, but it's, it's really this idea of they discern, they perceive. They, they perceive and they discern what you're about, what your convictions are, what your standards are, what you believe, where you stand, so that they may see your good works. Good works is a comprehensive term for everything that you do in your life, and to limit it to only one's actions would, I think, limit what Jesus is saying. These works include both words and deeds. It's, it's more than just giving the homeless man some money on the side of the road. It means, it, it refers to your gospel witness. It refers to the love that you would extend to unbelievers. It refers to the way that you would raise your family. It refers to how non-negotiable your convictions are. It's the whole package of your life in both word and deed. And Jesus says, if you let your light shine, it will have an extraordinary influence upon unbelievers in this world. And the result of all of this is at the end of verse 16. Look at it. It's so good. That you may glorify your Father who is in heaven. There's one reason and there's one reason only why we are commanded to be salt and light in the world. And that is to bring glory to your Father who is in heaven. 
So as we allow God's light to shine through our good works and deeds and words, who do they actually see in us? Christ. It's his light anyway, right? We're just allowing it to glow. So we are to be our true Christian selves, living the Christ-like life described in the Beatitudes and not ashamed of Christ. Then people will see us and our good works, and seeing us, they will glorify God. Why? For they will inevitably recognize that it is the grace of God we are what we are, and that our light is His light, and that our works are His works done in us and through us. So it is the light they will praise, not the lamp which bears it. It is our heavenly Father they will glorify, not the children he has begotten and who exhibit a certain family likeness. That is why we have to do all of our good works without showmanship, without personal display. We're not trying to bring attention to ourselves. We're not trying to to bring attention to our own name. We're trying to bring attention to God, our Father. And this always will be at the forefront of the mind of, of every Christian who is being salt and light. As we reveal our lights in our daily lives, we must remember that the Christian does not call attention to himself. His self has been forgotten about. His self is absent in his poverty of spirit and in his mourning. It is to be crushed in all of its subtlety for his sake and for his glory. Like the psalmist in 115.1 when he cried out, Not to us, O Yahweh, not to us, but to your name give glory. That is to be our attitude throughout every good work, throughout every act of obedience. That is at the forefront of our minds as Christians. And, and, and if, you don't, if, if you don't do this, then you are simply more concerned with your reputation than for God's glory. That's the bottom line. It's a hard truth, but it's the bottom line. So when this is your mindset though, I promise you, you will have a tremendous influence upon this dark, decaying world and you will bring great glory to God because you have become the agent that brings lost and dying sinners into the kingdom of light, right? I mean, I think what's implied is that as the disciple shines forth Christ's light through him, others come to recognize this light as God's light, and then they come to acknowledge God as their father. And I cannot think of anything that brings more glory to God than in the salvation of sinners. Think about it this way. God's only witnesses are his children, and the world has no other way of knowing him except through the testimony of what we are. So when we live the life of the Beatitudes, some people will respond favorably and be saved, whereas others will ridicule us, and they will persecute us, and they will revile us, and we saw that in verses 10 through 12. But here he puts it in the positive and he says, some people will respond to your light and be saved and God will get the glory. Paul put it this way in 2 Corinthians 2, 14. He said, God manifests through us, that is believers, the aroma of the knowledge of him in every place. For we are a fragrance of Christ to God among those who are being saved and among those who are perishing. To the one an aroma from death to death and the other an aroma from life to life. And he says, in the sight of God we speak in Christ. Some of us have got within us the treasure in earthen vessels, the gospel of Jesus Christ, only nobody knows. Listen, if you have a light, you've got to get your light where people can see it so it can function in the way that it was supposed to. We are not to conceal the truth that we know or the truth of what we are. Bonhoeffer puts it this way, a community of Jesus which seeks to hide itself has ceased to follow him, end quote. It's a strong statement. 
But when you consider Jesus' statement in Luke 9, for whoever is ashamed of me and my words, of him will the Son of Man be ashamed. I wonder whether that is true of some of you here sitting this morning. Whether you have allowed the, the, your salt to become tasteless and your light to become hidden. Maybe you've lost the power of your influence because you say, I'm just not that different from the world. Or, 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 or maybe you say, I have the light of Christ within me, but I'm just struggling to let it shine. Oh God, may it not be so of the people at Woodlawn Baptist Church. May it, may it not be said of us that we cave in to the standards of the decaying culture around us. May it not be said of us that we blend in with the society or that we stay within these walls only concerned with ourselves. But may we live bold, righteous lives, the type of life that resembles our Lord's life so that people see the way we live and then they ask us, why, it is that, why is it that they behave in such a way? Why is it that they're so kind and gracious all of the time? Why is it that they raise their family that way? Why is it that they believe certain things? Or why is it that they're so hospitable and generous all the time? And why is it that their language is so absent of vulgarity and impurity? You see, if you are asked those types of questions, it is surely because you are functioning as salt and light in the world. And then, by being exposed to this kind of person, they begin to wonder and they feel ashamed. The more saintly you are, of course, the more obviously this will take place. At first, you won't even need to say a word. By just being what you are, you make people feel ashamed of what they are doing. And in that way, you are truly functioning as salt and light. You are providing a standard. You are showing that there is another kind of life which is possible to mankind. You will point, you, you will therefore bring out the error and the failure of man's way of thinking and of living. And it's at this point, and this point only, that you are in a uh, position to share the gospel with that person and to share the light of God with that person. I am now able to speak and to teach them. Far too often, we Christians tend to reverse the order, right? We have spoken in sort of an enlightened way, but our lives do not back up what we speak. It needs to be the reverse order so that we are living our lives as salt and light and people see that and they ask us, why is it that you live such a way? And now I am able to speak and to teach and to share the gospel of Jesus Christ. Maybe you're listening to this and you say, man, there is no way I could live like that. Well, if you are a born again Christian, in this room, I would respond to you and say, yes, you can. You were born again for the purpose of living like that. This is your divinely ordained role while you are here on earth, on this side of heaven. Would you walk by the Spirit? Would you walk by the light? Would you wake up every day and live your life by grace alone so that you can influence and impact the world for his glory? And maybe you're here and you've never trusted Christ. Um, you know, maybe you're here and you, you've never put your faith in Christ. And if that's the case, there is no possible way for you to be salt and light. There's no way. Because you're not connected to him who is himself salt and light. You've never been made light, like it said in Ephesians 5. You've never been made light through him. You're still darkened in your understanding, and you are still alienated from the light and in darkness. Jesus says, you must be born again. Not physically born, but spiritually born. You need to be made a child of God. And John 1.12 says, For all who received him, who, be, who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God. And to receive him means to acknowledge his claims, put one's faith in his person and his substitutionary death and resurrection and thereby yield full allegiance to him. And when God works this out in your life, God will literally take Christ's light and put it within you. He'll take Christ's righteousness and he'll impute it to your life. And he'll take your sin and he'll lay it on Christ. 
and credit Christ's righteousness to you. Would you trust Christ today? May God grant the individual members of Woodlawn Baptist Church and other believers in our community extraordinary success as we live out our lives day in and day out as salt and light of the world. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you for this powerful and convicting portion of Scripture. Each time we come to read this sermon on the mount, we face ourselves in the light of its teaching, and we feel humbled by its standard. So Lord, please allow your grace to strengthen us, and that we may live this way by your Spirit, with our eyes firmly fixed on Christ. We thank you for the example of the way that you lived as salt and light, the way you lived with purity, the way you talked was also the way that you lived day in and day out, and the way that you called out sin for what it really is, and the way you exposed the darkness with your light, the way you shined forth God's grace and glory as you proclaimed the gospel and the power it has to change and transform lives. We ask that you would help us to live in this way. May you help every Christian in this room to go out into the world as salty saints and as shining lights so that God may be glorified. This is the ultimate longing of our hearts. Help us to believe it and to live it. We ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen. How are you being soft? How are you being light?